0: Hello and good day, Marvelous Podcast family. I hope that wherever you are in the world, that you are healthy, that you are happy, that you are making the most out of these trying times on the planet. I am sending you all of my love, good wishes, and support through the airwaves. I am doing as many podcasts as I can to find empowering perspectives on this situation. If you want to support the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Please share on Facebook, on Instagram, wherever. You can support on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com forward slash Matt Belair, you can join the academy and get access to the absolutely phenomenal Soul Compass course that will teach you how to use your natural GPS system to create a life of of meaning purpose and extraordinary living by your own definitions and you can get that at bit.ly forward slash mind body spirit 21 and during this time i'm doing a pay as you want so just dm me uh, send me an email anywhere mad at zenathlete.com let me know what you can pay happy to put you through that course and get you access to all the amazing exclusive content and training over there and for those of you guys who are interested in coaching just hit me up mad at zenathlete.com some people want to use this time to do course and level up and I am happy to support you so I hope that you're doing well let's get into this amazing episode but first let's come to a state of peace and coherence wherever you are in the world just stop what you're doing take in a deep breath in through your nose filling every cell every muscle and fiber of your being with peace joy empowerment strength inner knowing and ready to take on this amazing episode Hello and welcome to the Master Mind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is widely known as the Godfather of Green. He is a professional engineer and the author of 12 trade and professional books on green buildings, water conservation, green homes, green marketing, and sustainable development. He is an environmental activist, and his new book shows one person finding his place over many years and as an active participant in three major environmental movements, beginning with the first Earth Day in 1970, up to the present climate crisis. Over the past 10 years, he has keynoted nearly 100 conferences and events in 20 countries. He holds civil and environmental engineering degrees from California Institute of Technology and Harvard University with an MBA with honors from the University of Oregon. He is His new book, The Godfather of Green, an eco-spiritual memoir, welcome, uh, is, is going to be released in April. Welcome to the show, Jerry Udelson. Thank you, Matt.
1: Lovely to be here.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Um, I was introduced to you and I got a chance to look at your work and what we were saying before the broadcast started, you've been in this field for a long time. You have a ton of education and also real world experience in, in in the environment, in climate, in engineering. And so our discussion before this, I was like, we need to go live because all of this is so important. It's so relevant and amazing. So It's really a privilege to have you here. Um, Your book is going to be released in April. Um, I'm I'm sure it would be great if it was uh, different times. We're in very interesting times right now. And maybe it's perfect for your book to be released and your message to be released because we're experiencing some of those uh, negative side effects now. So why don't you just tell the audience a little bit about who you are, some of the work you've done, and the importance of releasing your book at this time?
1: Yeah, so I'm Jerry Udelson, Um, I've been around, as you could tell, I got my gray hairs honestly, as we say. Um, But I started my career as an environmentalist with the first Earth Day, when I was actually a student at Caltech. Um, And I was interested at that time in pollution control. So I was studying water pollution control, air pollution control. And when the opportunity came around to organize Earth Day events at our campus, I jumped at it. And I didn't really know why, it's just that it appealed to me at the time that rather than just studying something, here was an opportunity to educate people about it and to start doing something about it. And long story short, I eventually left graduate school, uh, became an activist, wound up teaching at University of California in Santa Cruz, um, wrote wrote some of the first environmental impact reports in California in the early 70s, um, helped prevent some bad developments from uh, coastal spots and wetlands. And long about the time of the first oil crisis, um, people don't remember, obviously, if you're younger, you can't remember, but we had gas lines similar to the lines that you now see outside of Costco, people trying to buy toilet paper. But we we're trying to buy gasoline and we would wait in hours in lines in the 70s uh, during that fuel crisis. So I began to get interested in renewable energy. I said, well, you know, we've got a shortage of oil now, but if you look at the sun, four billion years without a shortage. So that's much better and much more reliable. What can we do? And so over the course of a few years, um, I became the lead person in California for Jerry Brown when he was governor in promoting solar power. Um, And I did that for a decade. And when the Reagan administration came in, um, they basically cut all the subsidies by mid-decade because solar needed some help getting going. And I was also in the wind power industry at that time as well in California. Long story short, we went into this hiatus period from the mid-80s to you know roughly the beginning of the Obama administration when the technologies kept developing, but we didn't have that renewable energy to ba- fall back on. Now we do. Now, if you look at last year, probably 70% of all new electricity capacity added in the U.S. came from wind and sun. So, So... That's 50 years, that's a long time. We don't have that much time to get it right when it comes to climate change. But then in the mid 90s, I got involved with the green building movement. And what's the green building movement? It's designing better buildings, but particularly that use a lot less resources. So if you wanna look at uh, the US and Canada, 40% of all energy use, all electricity, i sorry, all energy use comes from buildings comes from our homes, our schools, hospitals, office buildings, industry buildings. So if we're going to attack climate change, we've got to attack buildings. So we've been at this for 25 years. Um, Again, a generation, and we've made a lot of progress. But again, we don't have another 25 years to get it right. So I think the real lesson in my career and my experience is you know, we've got to compress the time scale for making change in a way that we've never done before. And if you want to relate that to the uh, coronavirus, we've had to compress the time scale for getting our act together from years into weeks. And so I think there's a lot of lessons learned there about, which we'll see hopefully in a few months when this thing goes through its cycle that we can mobilize to do just about anything we wanna do as a society, but there's a lot of inconvenience along the way. Right now I'm under a shelter in place order from the governor of California. and The governor of New York is trying to get New Yorkers to shelter in place in in Florida. So so it's it's happening all over the entire country of Italy is under lockdown. France is gonna get there quickly, and Germany will be next. So that's what you have to do to confront an epidemic, a pandemic. But the problem with the climate crisis is it's slower moving. So while we see the effects in droughts and flooding, in uh, climate events that we've never seen before, in invasion of insect species, I mean, Dengue fever is a tropical disease, but it's starting to be seen in the US now as the climate warms and the organisms that cause that fever can move north. So, this I think is a preview of life ahead, and there's some good parts. We all work together, we respond together, we take care of those who are impacted, but it also means an unprecedented degree of change and control that we're going to have to experience. And we don't like that as Americans, as Canadians, as, you know, we, we, we want to be free to do our own thing, but there's a lot of collective stuff that's going to have to be done that we're going to have to switch to all electric vehicles. So you say, what do you do with the billion or so motor vehicles that are out there? And how do you make that transition over time? And how do you supply the electricity? And how do you charge everybody who wants to go somewhere? And how do you run interstate commerce? You know, So you start thinking of all these things. The good news is lots of people have thought about it. And there's lots of solutions uh, out there. What there needs to be is a recognition of a crisis. And that, of course, at a national level with the current government is not there. and They've had to be browbeat into responding to coronavirus because the projections for the number of people who would die if we did nothing, were pretty significant in the, in the millions. And no politician wants to be responsible for that. So at least that finally got people's attention. As they used to say, if you know you're getting hanged tomorrow, you'll definitely focus your mind today. So that that I think is, we don't see yet the climate crisis, but what I did in my book, it's it's an eco-spiritual journey. So there's equal parts of environmental work and equal parts of inner work. But at the end, I wrote an epilogue and it's an open letter to a young climate striker. I said, well, you are gonna have to deal with this thing. I I'm going to go stage left. Before long, uh, we all are. But you, the young people, are going to have to deal with this. What have I learned that I could communicate to you might be valuable for you? And I think that was the. That's the end of the book. So I felt like I had to. I couldn't just say, "Well, I've lived this life, and here it is, and it's a memoir. So it's there's a lot of." stuff in there that you know wasn't I'm not proud of today but was real at the time um but what were the key lessons and one of the key lessons as we talked about before the show is you've got to get back in nature you've got to whether it's forest bathing or ocean bathing or desert bathing you've got to climb a mountain somewhere you've got to walk You have to feel your feet on the earth because otherwise you won't understand why it's important to protect it. You won't understand why the rhythms of nature are also your inner rhythms and how you can access them. And you won't have an appreciation for the beauty of nature if you keep looking at your phone instead of looking up. So I wanted to, at the end of the book, give that kind of a, message because there's plenty of good technical people out there that can tell you much better than i can well we need to do this much solar power and this much wind power and all that's good stuff and i've done it in my career but right now i think the key lesson is if you want to change the world you first have to change yourself then you're going to be effective over the long term
0: Jerry, all that's amazing and, and so on point. And I can't think of a better time for your message to get out there now. And what I wanted to ask, we, we talked a lot, a lot of things before the podcast and you were sharing so much stuff. So I'd love for us to make sure that that all happens. But I, I'll ask it in the question of like, what do you think got us here? What do you think got us to the point of, you know, what we're experiencing in the environment, what we're experiencing with the coronavirus? Because this isn't just environmental. It's, it's also spiritual. It's also uh, so many other things from kind of living a life that's really not in in harmony with just natural laws, with you know values of of human life and human being. You know, we even have uh, twenty five thousand people a day still die of starvation. Ten thousand a day are dying of suicide. And so, what's happening here? What are these? What have you seen in your life to cause us to get to where we are? And what would you recommend for us moving forward?
1: Well, you you know, if you go to New Orleans, and I forget the French, but the motto is, let the good times roll, right? Um, Le bon bon temps. So we've had the good times since the end of the Second World War. I mean, if you look at history in Europe, they had 100 years of peace after the end of Napoleonic Wars until the start of the First World War. And their whole culture flourished. In all the countries, 100 years of peace, we've had 75 years of peace, relatively speaking, since the end of World War II, and we've had cheap fossil fuels. And I think the real lesson is we have had it really well. We've had a growing population, we've had people out who are able to work, etc, and everything was great, except all the cheap fossil fuels meant was we could be really careless in how we use them. We could be careless with the environment in terms of oil spills and everything associated with producing all these goods, polluting the water, polluting the airways. You know, And for the most part, most people felt like life was getting better, getting easier. They could travel. I mean, if you look at human history, for the most part, once we had cities and agriculture, and moved away from hunting and gathering, where if you were hungry, you just kind of walked out around into the woods or forests or grasslands around you, and you found something to eat. Once we moved into cities and agriculture, human beings were on the verge of starvation for millennia. That was the human existence, barely subsistence. I told you 95% of the people at the end of the 19th century in the US worked somehow in agriculture, growing food, growing fiber, harvesting trees, right? That was the world. Now, all of a sudden, you go two generations later and three generations later, and we're down to 5% in agriculture. In one sense, great. It doesn't take all those people. We can do other things. We can make computers and we can have podcasts and all that good stuff. But the flip side is we did it by essentially living off of the earth's stored capital. We've overfished the oceans, we've over uh, harvested the forests, we've degraded our soils. I mean, if you wanna look at degrading of soils in the US, look at an aerial map of the mouth of the Mississippi and how brown the water is. What's that brown water? That's all the soil from Iowa from growing corn that is washed down and washed away forever. So all of a sudden, it's like we've lost this whole idea of regeneration, of, of living in a way that is v- valid, as the elders would say, for the next and seven, seven generations. And of course, lots of us have realized this, and lots of us have done things over the last several decades to start moving in a different direction. But as a whole, uh, I shared with you that 80% of all the fossil fuels excess that are in the atmosphere is carbon dioxide have been burned since I was born. The scientists warned us 30 years ago about climate change in a serious way. Half of all the fossil fuels that have been burned created carbon dioxide have happened in that 30 years. Largely the result of China industrializing, India industrializing, all of a sudden we, hey, people are out of poverty. But we've lost touch with what uh, keeps us here, what allows us to stay here. And so we now have to make this huge shift as huge a shift as the industrial revolution was when people were thrown off the land and into factories and into crowded polluted cities 250 years ago all of a sudden this is now going to be the next huge transition and unlike before human beings are now responsible for the whole planet I mean, population of the Earth has tripled since I was born. So you see, all of a sudden, what might have been sustainable with two and a half billion people now we have seven and a half and going on to nine or 10 maybe no longer sustainable. We can't keep degrading the Earth's ecosystems. we can't. So we know how to get out of this bind, but it's really inconvenient as inconvenient as the coronavirus is keeping me at home and I go shopping every three days now, you know, it's like, well, that's good. And my brother just said, he's gone shopping now for a whole week. I guess if you have a big enough freezer, you can do that. Um, But it's inconvenient. It's like changing things. It's like changing our whole mindset. Our mindset was, hey, everything's good. And of course, for 10% of the people, 20% of people, life has never been really good. You know, they've never had enough to eat. They've, they've, they've had addictions. They've, you just go down the list. But for the most part, like life is good. So now we have to make this wrenching shift in our thinking. And that I think is the real challenge. It's what you might call a paradigm shift. A shift in mindset and fortunately we have models. We have models among the elders, among indigenous people, we have models among spiritual people. Um, We have plenty of models but it's now we have to face up to, as they say with the Nike slogan, just do it. And I think that is the real Spiritual challenge, the real political challenge, the real economic challenge of the next decade, because that's about the time we have to slow down the uh, destruction that we're doing and to try to get onto an alternative pathway. We've already baked in warming for 300 years, unless we somehow magically figure out how to take all that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere which if you can just think about the atmosphere, it's the whole planet. Trying to do that in an industrial fashion is going to be probably 50 to 100 years of effort. So in the meantime, we got to stop. As they say, when you're, when you're heading towards the edge of a cliff riding a horse, the first sign of wisdom is to pull back on the reins, right? And I think that's the first wisdom we need, is to stop adding to the problem and so to me it's like yeah well how do you do that well got lots of models
0: all of that is was really great and i like how you know it's very balanced in your view you know it's like okay there is a problem um because you know but there are solutions I, in this pandemic i've seen so much interesting stuff coming up on facebook people losing their mind and the whole world's coming to an end um you know to every every part of the spectrum and i really appreciate how your view is very balanced and you're also saying too that you know it seems that we as a species need a crisis to make a change so often rather than you know life is good and and heeding the warnings that we see you know to go do that it's like we need to get to this crisis point and this is the opportunity that we have as a civilization And one example I like to share is like, imagine team earth, you know, if, if the solar system or there's other planets out there and there's all these other civilizations, they would look at humanity and be like, we don't want these guys to play with us. They're violent. They're dangerous. They're selfish. They're destroying their own planet. You know, it's, those are very juvenile ways to exist in this world. And that's what we're doing as a species. And so what if, Team USA and Team Canada and Team Korea and Team China and Team India all got together and we started looking at this as a global family, as a global unit, as this is our home and putting those values up top and really integrating and, and trying to do those things. And so I really like your view and, and, and hope that now we can start to make that mental paradigm shift and also take action because this is something that is affecting everyone on the planet. And you were talking about before we jumped on here uh, the most underreported story. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Well, you know, if you want to look at coronavirus as a fully reported story, um, the most underreported story still is climate change. And that to me is everything that goes with that. But one of the things is how we've, been, we've spent all of these billions upon billions of dollars building this scientific enterprise. We have 2,000 colleges and universities. We have hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of climate scientists. We've paid for them. Why don't we listen to them? It's like, if you go to a doctor's office, you generally tend to listen to the doctor. Because you figure, well, he or she has had a lot of training, they see a lot of people, they may or may not have particular wisdom or insight, but they've got technical skills that are useful. And you generally, unless you're very committed to a holistic perspective, um, will follow their recommendations. Um, In today's world, of course, we, we challenge more, but that's fine. But now we've got these literally tens of thousands of climate scientists telling us in great detail, with very well-tuned models, what is likely to happen. We're seeing the Arctic being ice-free earlier and earlier every year from warming. We're seeing all of these signs that there's something dearly wrong. We're seeing fishing uh, intake go down, fish catches go down worldwide because we are overfishing the oceans we're seeing uh plastic blobs in the pacific that are the size of whole states in the u.s from plastics that are washed in the ocean we're seeing microplastics in every organism that we look at way in the deep ocean from our activities so at some point we would have to say well um I like being in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, but he's got some big problems here. And what will it take to listen to the scientists enough to say, well, yes, we agree and we're going to do something about it? So, what I said earlier is I hope that the response, the global response to the coronavirus, will trigger some of that same thinking. And it's not about the Paris Agreement, because it's really Um, I knew a scientist once who said, well, if you think about science as an enterprise, there's two things that go on. One is you have, it's like a pincers maneuver, like a crab or a lobster. He says, you've got all the data that you have and you have your theories and you have to put them together. The theory is no good without data and data is no good without something to explain why it's there and so, What we have to do here is a different kind of pincers maneuver, which is political leadership on one hand and mindset change on the part of you and me on the other hand. And you and me means all of our neighbors. And that is uh, one of the climate scientists I follow on Twitter. She's very big right now on holding conversations. Just talking to your neighbors about the issue. just sharing your concerns, and maybe good good news that you have, because only about 10% of the people are like, well, I'm just gonna die before any of this is a problem for me. And uh, grandkids, they'll take care of themselves. I mean, my grandparents didn't worry about me, why should I worry about them, right? That's about 10% of the people. 90% of the people are willing to have a dialogue, or to make real change. And so what we need is both political leadership from the top down, and we need the bottom-up change in our own thinking and habits and mindsets, and you know, we have a hard time organizing around anything that's not a crisis, right? Like we have a housing crisis in California, I mean we have, I don't know the number, half a million homeless people in the state of California. yeah, some of them would be homeless anyways, but for the most part, they can't afford to, a place to live. And yet we've had we have unprecedented prosperity. What's what's wrong here? Well, it's the political system, and it's not delivering the goods because if I live in a nice single-family house, I don't want to see an apartment building down the street. You know, that's kind of the way things are. Um, so. I think that coronavirus may be a wake-up call for not just confronting a pandemic, but for having to do things that are uncomfortable, but in the greater good. And I think that's the essence. I mean, I may never get sick. I have probably haven't had a cold in five years. Um, knock on wood, they say. Um, but my neighbor might get sick, if I'm just carrying something. So I'm gonna stay away from my neighbor. And what about our neighbor, the earth? You know, could we shelter in place in terms of our impact on the earth long enough for nature to start to heal? And I think that is, um, I was talking with somebody the other day about the idea of wilderness. And you know, if you look at human history, the wilderness has always been thought of as a dangerous place, you know, wild animals that don't know how special you are and just might eat you. Um, But in the 20th century, we began to see the wilderness as a place of regeneration. And if you talk to the elders, there was never any wilderness. There was just people living there, right? Even in the Great Basin, the hottest, driest part of the US, there were small tribes of Shoshone and other Native Americans, right? And they figured out how to get along in those environments. There just weren't very many of them. And then when you had abundant resources, there was more population, right? So could we take this crisis and turn it into a way to think about nature differently? And also to think about ourselves because, you know, sheltering in place means I have to confront myself. There's no bar, sports bar for amusement, right? There's no um, church I can go to. There's no uh, restaurant to hang out and have a few drinks and have a good time. Um, there's no coffee shop. There's nothing around. Just me with myself and so if you're a a meditator in a way this is mana from heaven you know it's like oh boy I get to be alone you know it's like that famous cartoon of the Dalai Lama opening his birthday present which is an empty box and he says oh boy nothing I've always wanted this (laughs) so Maybe this is an opportunity to really practice meditation, to really have a conversation with your spouse or significant other, to spend time in your garden. Um, So it could be that for a few weeks now, we have a golden opportunity to go within and to find the inner resource that we can use to overcome the fear The panic, the dread, and replace that with a feeling of love and well being that we can then offer to others. Because I think the essence of spiritual life is your life is an offering. After a while, you realize it's not about you, it's about what you can offer to everyone else. And the great masters, you know, exemplify that perspective because they're very happy sitting in a cave they're very happy sitting in the forest but they come out and be among us so that we might see an alternative way to live and to be and i think that is something that maybe we're going to first of all it might be difficult but it's like any meditation practice you have to wait a while for the chatter of the mind to subside, right? Before you can slide into that place of peace. So to me, it's like, there may be a bright side,
0: Jerry, all that was really, really beautifully put. I I agree with everything that you're sharing. And it looks like if you were to look at society just two weeks ago, or even now, you know, we live in a world where we're very distracted. We live in a world where it's go, go, go and acquire. And a lot of the time, we don't think about our lives and how it's impacting things. We don't see how, um, you know, our jobs might not be Great. You know, in Buddhism, they talk about right livelihood. And that means a vocation, something that's, you know, you're offering our service to your community. And you put that in a very beautiful way. And now what's happening is people are questioning a lot of things. And one of them is their own mortality, because if they weren't afraid that they were going to die, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be worried about the virus or panicking. And then also because they have all this time, they have all this self-reflection time, which they may not have had In a long time, because our our society is really set up in a way that a lot of people are go, 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 and they don't make that time to ask what they're doing to see what's important to them to see what effect they're having. And so it really does offer an opportunity and it might be for a lot of people hard and painful to look at some of these things and, and to slow down and say, you know what, maybe this is the change I needed there's so many stories of people who were addicted to certain things maybe it's alcohol or um, ways in their life where they just couldn't stop something and it took a crisis it took um, an illness it took some sort of event for them to stop what they were doing to change their ways for whether it was addiction or way of life or whatever the case may be and comparatively this could be the planet's opportunity that says hey you know the way that you guys are running this thing it you need an event you need to stop what you're doing because it's been this slow boil and nobody seems motivated enough to as you said nike just do it to get uncomfortable because the change often is very uncomfortable it's not what you're used to and um, this path is easier and it's been going well and so you may as well keep going as long as you can and we can become so distracted in our lives with, with so many different things. We're not really looking at the important things. And I'd love to ask you, when you talk about in your book, eco-spirituality, can you define that? I think you've touched on it a little bit, but can you define eco-spirituality? And to go a step further, I'm just curious, if you had a magic wand, And you could just start kind of changing things in the world. Maybe it's mindsets or perspectives or ways that we were doing things. You know, What things would you kind of influence and shift um, that you believe would help us move in a more positive and sustainable direction so that the human being and the human spirit can be cultivated? And we do it in a way that we're honoring the planet and the oceans and all these things here so we can go seven generations, ten generations, and a hundred generations respecting the planet that we're on.
1: Yeah, that's a, a tall order, Matt, but...
0: <laughs> Can't think um, of a better man for the job.
1: <laughs> you know, the when I was first involved with Earth Day and I first began to self-educate myself about ecology and environment, um, because I'm an engineer by training, and you, when you study engineering, for the most part at that time, You didn't study that uh, rivers had fish in them. You studied idealized rivers that people didn't swim in and so forth, because you were mainly concerned with how do I get the pollution out, right? Um, And when I moved to the Pacific Northwest in the early 90s, I I moved into the salmon culture. And as you know, the salmon is like the totem animal in the Northwest, west of the Cascades, um, the salmon runs were abundant and people, if they got hungry, they would just walk down to the river and throw a net in and boom, during the, during the runs. Um, and I found people that I met and my peers, grown men, would start to tear up when they recalled how the salmon had diminished because we built all those dams on the Columbia River. And the the only real salmon runs that are left are on the coastal streams where there are no dams. And at the time when we did that, I don't know if you ever listened to Woody Guthrie and the sort of folk singers of that era, but they were celebrating these dams because people had electricity. People had could run washing machines. People in the rural areas that had a very hard life now could have light at night so kids could study, right? So this was like progress. And we didn't really see um until the 60s, so maybe a generation later, the impact on the salmon runs because it takes a while, you know, salmon goes out in the ocean for seven years before they come back to spawn. So if you want to think about it that way, it takes a few generations of salmon before you start to see diminished returns. And they, uh, they put these fish ladders by the dams where supposedly the fish would hop up, upstream over the fish ladders and then you go into a lake and then you swim a little more and then you'd hop some more and it didn't really work. But that was the propaganda was we've taken care of the problem. And the same with forests. We actually have more forest cover now, in the US, and Canada, than we had 300 years ago. Why? Because all of those farms that were hacked out of woodlands have been abandoned. But the quality of the trees is a lot different because the British, the English colonists cut down all the tall trees in New England to make masts for ships, right? in the 1600s and 1700s until they were all gone. Well, it takes 200 years to grow a tall tree, right? So a lot of these things don't change in a fast. And so I think the thing that we need to do first is to put on the brakes. And put on the brakes means slowing down because it takes a while if you're driving in a car You don't stop on a dime, right? It takes a few hundred feet to stop a car because of the momentum. And our momentum is there. So I think the first, and we've done this with the environmental movement. I the environmental movement in a way, if you wanna think about it, is a red light on the traffic lane of industrialization. It's saying, stop, we're not gonna do this anymore. We're not gonna put mercury into the air because it's a poison. You know, we're not gonna put sulfur dioxides into the air because they cause acid rain and they kill our forests and the you know, down, downwind. And so you know, we, over 50 years, we've kind of figured out the things we should stop doing and we've started to incentivize. We put the green light up for the things we should be doing. Renewable energy, wind power, solar power, um, Sustainable farming practices. Because you and I, as consumers, now we go in and we look at a package. Is it certified? Is it eco labeled for sustainability? Is it sustainably sourced? Is it fair trade? I mean, we we have put in place a whole system for the 15% of us who are, if you want to say, awake. But there's 85% who still need some nudging and i think that is the task of anyone who feels like they've awakened a little is to nudge somebody else and we can do this i mean look we have electric cars the last electric cars were like a hundred years ago when they first started to figure out well how should i power a car right and they had steam engines right the stanley steamer on cars and they had electricity They had battery run cars and everybody figured out, well, gasoline powered is the best or diesel powered is the best. So now we're in a stage of like, well, okay, that was fun. And that had a good, we had a good time. We had the Daytona 500, the Indy 500. We had low riders, Southern California car culture. We had all of this fun stuff, but we bought it at a huge price. And now I think we're beginning to see nature's pushing back in all kinds of dimensions. And we've caused a lot of it. I mean, look, there have been plagues before. There have been pandemics. 25% of Europe was wiped out during the plague in the 1300s. Literally 25% of everybody was dead all of a sudden, within two or three years, these things went on and on. We had millions of people dying from cholera, even in this century, right? Because of poor sanitation in cities. So it isn't like we have never had plagues before, but we used to always think of them as acts of God. And now we're sort of saying, well, wait a minute, we probably had a role in this. And what is our role? And and then you start to, you know, um, The the Japanese have this idea of the seven whys, W-H-Y. If you ask why seven times about a problem, you're bound to get much closer to the real cause of a problem or an issue than if you just take the first answer, right? Well, we have a global warming problem because there's too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, right? Why is there too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Well. Because we've powered our whole society with fossil fuels. Well, why do we need to do that? Well, because it's cheap. Well, why don't we care about the effects, right? So you start to unravel this ball of yarn so that you can knit something else. Isn't that how the people who knit do things? They unravel their sweater so they can knit a different sweater. So I think we're now in the unraveling phase. And we have these um, designs, these drawings on the wall. Lots of people have created the design for sustainable future. I I ran a consulting business for several years that did that. We wrote a sustainable master plan for the largest university in the US. But they have to do it. You know, know, plans are easy. Um, Or I think what General Eisenhower used to say, Plans are worthless, but planning is everything. So to go through the exercise of, because c- the first time somebody starts shooting, plan goes out the window, right? Or more contemporary, Mike Tyson used to say, everybody has a plan, right? Until they get hit in the mouth.
0: I'm so glad you used that one. It's, it's the first one I was thinking about.
1: <laughs> yeah. So we, we've, But we've got plenty of I- designs, plenty of ideas. We know where to go. And now we have to figure out how to incentivize the great number of us to do that. You know, I think if I could get an electric car for the same price as a gas powered car, and I had all the infrastructure in place, and I usually don't go anywhere more than 25 or 50 miles in a day, why wouldn't I want to do that? You know, because All of a sudden, you're seeing clean air in cities that haven't had clean air in a generation or two. We know we can do this. You're seeing clean water in various places that haven't seen clean water in a long time. So one of the things I hope will come out of this crisis is uh, people will say, why can't we have that all the time? and and then start demanding it politically. And this is where the young people come in, the young students, climate strikers, is Fridays for the future, is we need to demand of our leaders the, a future that is much more livable. And that I think is gonna continue and even strengthen after this crisis is over.
0: Amazing, Jerry. Again, very beautifully put. I I think that you summarize all that in a very grounded and practical way and also from somebody who's been in the field for a long time. And one of the questions I wanted to ask, you know, I hear in in some of the places where, you know, we're, we're positive and we're optimistic and we're working for a better world, whether it's clean the oceans or sustainable buildings or uh, how does everybody get food, water, and shelter? How do we end war? They're all great conversation pieces and things that people in the world, I think, should consider and figure out and be motivated to find solutions for. And so I'm curious if you're presenting something that through research and engineering and science-based and you know proven models that should work. There's no reason why they shouldn't. It's a, it's a very well-developed thought on moving towards a more sustainable way of building a culture or a city or a building or anything of those means. What have you seen that has resisted those things being implemented? My guess from doing a little bit of research in different fields is it usually comes down to a profit of something already existing. You know, if you look at who killed the electric car or why these oil pipelines are going through, usually it has to do with somebody losing a lot of money. I'm just curious if that's what you've seen in your experience of what's been preventing these better solutions from coming forward and and people executing on them. Because when all of these things require money and manpower, that's the big challenge. You know, it might be great for me to say, hey, you know, I'm going to build, I'm going to go help build this thing. But now that I've got a daughter, And, you know, I've got a partner that relies on me. I've got to make the money. And so people are like, you know what, Matt, I'd love to help clean the oceans, but I have to pay for my family. And so that even that alone is a huge challenge for the average person to get engaged with their time and what they're dealing with, then alone getting the hundreds of millions of dollars of funding um, and where that would go. And I'm just curious if you could shed some light on that idea.
1: You know, the response that we're having now is realizing that if we're going to support each other in this time of crisis, if we're basically shutting down all of the service economy, the non-essential service economy, that we have to, in some way, shape or form, compensate the losers. So those, you know, the government now, U.S. government now wants to send everybody a small check. So they can pay next month's rent. The hope being, of course, that we'll be back to work in a month. Um, so whether it's a yoga studio or a, a fitness studio, they're all shut down. Everything's closed. Um, and so those, my personal trainer, is out of a job right now. And hopefully, he's saved up some money. He's old enough to at least have probably have some money saved up. Um, so. How do we make this change? Clearly our political system has been corrupted. Uh, There's 100,000 roughly lobbyists in Washington, DC, paid for by somebody uh, with money. So what usually happens is you need a cathartic event. And this may be one to overcome the political resistance at, at every level and I don't think it doesn't matter about political parties because every level has been in the, in the pay of people who are on top. And we, so we've seen growing inequality and at some point the people as a whole will deal with that and they usually deal with that in a rather destructive way. So the, the, the challenge now is can we deal with that in a very constructive way? So if you look at Canada, you're basically going to kill the province of Alberta if you stop extracting oil right in tar sands and if you or if you don't build pipelines to send it somewhere so I was thinking as you were talking um, that you're a martial arts guy and one of the things in martial arts is you're always looking for a leverage point you're always looking for where where can I get somebody off guard or off balance and it doesn't take much usually to create an opening right um and so i think if you think about well the whole fossil fuel economy where's the leverage points it's not at the gas station and it's not at the pipeline it's with the money and so who's financing these projects all of a sudden a tremendous amount of energy has been devoted towards divestment and making life really uncomfortable for the people that, that have agreed to finance the growth of fossil fuels, the, the infrastructure. So what you suggested is also true that there's a huge uh, embedded infrastructure that is gonna be basically worthless. And if you see, if you looked at, uh, if you're in the stock market and you look at Exxon, for example, Exxon stock has lost tens of billions of dollars as a company value over the last decade, because people realize, either overtly or implicitly, this is not a viable business for the future. And whether it's Exxon, just one example, um, so you now you have this whole industry which is forget that they employ a lot of people because the solar industry employs more people now than the oil industry because this oil industry is so automated. So all of a sudden you have to say, well, where are the leverage points? And if you go down the list of each one of these things that's contributing to the problem, where are the leverage points? Well, right now, if for electric cars, the leverage point is charging stations, right? So we could fix that. We could stop leveraging financing. And if you look at climate change and people continuing to build at the coast, where's the leverage point? Leverage point is insurance, right? If I can't buy insurance, I can't buy a home. And all of a sudden, who's gonna lend you on 30 years at no recourse, right? Means you can walk away and they can't collect on their loan, who's gonna lend you for 30 years for an oceanfront condo? That's gonna disappear, right? So some of these problems are gonna solve themselves because of the way our finance system works and how risk-averse it is. Um, And others are gonna need political support. Um, I'm gonna need an electric car to be the same price as a gas-powered car if I'm a typical consumer or close to it, right? because that's the problem. The difficulty comes when you try to do it abruptly. So in France, a year or so ago, they tried to raise the price of fuel a little bit. I mean, we were talking about going from maybe $4 a gallon to $5, let's say. And the whole country erupted in riots, right? Every country where they've tried to eliminate fuel subsidies has erupted in huge riots. Which just shows you how precarious people's situation is where having to spend an extra 10 or 20 or $30 a week on fuel means they can't eat. So you begin to see, well, it has to be even-handed. If you're going to take one thing away with a stop sign, you have to offer something else, right? And so now we have all these proposals floating around about taxing carbon. And I've done some of the numbers and the proposals that are, you know, if everybody in Washington DC agrees on something, you can be pretty well assured it's a bad idea. <laughs> that's, that's the way, that, is, that it's insufficient to address the problem. And so we have to continue to talk to each other in a real way we have to continue to advocate for things that are future-oriented and not past-looking. Um, but it's it's real disruption. It's probably as big a disruption as as a major war. And you know, I, I looked once when I was in a, a business guy. Um, the auto production in the U.S. The top year was 1929 until the mid fifties. We produced more autos in 1929 than we did any year until the mid fifties. What happened? Economic depression, world war, and then, then recovering from the war, right? So sometimes it takes huge disruptions to change things and nobody wishes that for themselves or their neighbors or their friends or their relatives. But that may be, we may be entering an age of discontinuity where we cannot rely on the systems that we've put in place. We already know it with cyber threats, with, with hackers, that this great system that we all grew to love was all of a sudden hugely vulnerable to bad actors. And, you know, we live in the world where bad actors are prevalent. So now we're having to do all this stuff to protect ourselves and surveillance cameras everywhere. And, you know, did we really bargain for that when we signed onto Facebook? You know? I mean, it's getting now, so I won't even open a video in, in Messenger from somebody that I know because until I talk to them person to person, did you really send me that, right? So, this is the modern world, and it is a world of discontinuities. Um, and we all go along because, yeah, we're adaptable creatures. I mean, the human species is dominant on the planet because it's adaptable. I think the only thing with more biomass than humans on the planet is cockroaches, which thrive, thrive on our environments, right?
0: <laughs> They're thriving right now. They have no problem.
1: Yeah. So um, that's a lot of talking, but I think before you decide you're going to do something, you have to investigate it. It's like my, my teacher used to say, don't accept anything I say is valid until you have proven it to yourself. I'm just giving you what I've learned. you got to imbibe it, assimilate it, implement it, and then it will be yours. And so all of this stuff we have to somehow bring inside and make our own if we're going to be effective advocates for change.
0: Amazing. Again, I think I keep saying that. Amazing. Beautifully put. And and it is. I can't think of any other words to say other than that. It's really a joy to listen to your view and perspective because, again, it's very grounded and balanced. And also comes with years and years of experience in these systems, in these structures. Um, you know, one of the things I want to ask you, it, you spoke about a little bit is like, you know, how come our politics are not listening, our, our, our politicians aren't listening to our scientists? And I always thought it was curious. And for me, looking at politics as a kid, I was like, this is baloney. This is like McDonald's versus Burger King. There's something behind the scenes that nobody's winning. Nothing, you know, my family's not benefiting from this. Something's off. And so, if you look at these systems, they seem to be in need of an upgrade, and we need to move a little bit quicker and I always thought, why aren't the smartest people you know the smartest and the most grounded and educated people in all different areas you know advising our political systems and so I'm curious if you would have a suggestion for for what you would think is how would we merge those ideas of these political systems to Incorporate leading scientists, but also that spiritual side, that that understanding of I don't know what you might want to call it, natural law. Saying, hey, you know, if you build, it's like common sense too, right? If you build all these things by these rivers, it's going to mess up this whole ecosystem and, and affect those people too. It's not sustainable for the environment. So we respect the earth, we respect each other, and we also look at technology and science in that forefront, and we use it for good. We can say something like, hey, you know, we could we could go to the moon if we do this with the trees. But if we do that with the trees, the planet's only going to have five years to live. So maybe that equation doesn't work, you know? And how do we begin to implement this kind of thinking on a on a scale of people who are making these decisions? Um, because it seems like there's a lot of concentrated power and a lot of money making interesting decisions. And, and they're not really... Consulting in a very real way, the people that might have solutions, like uh, people like you, looking at environment for so long, and and then you could suggest a few other people that would come in, and so we really have very powerful insights and models, and then the people that can put them through and execute and kind of goes through whatever that checklist is, you know, the the planetary checklist, the uh, human checklist, and kind of the spiritual checklist. Like, is this is this ethical? Is this you know just basic things? It seems.
1: You know, it's interesting. You said going to the moon because you would never get to the moon and return people alive if you didn't listen to scientists of all kinds, right? It, it would never happen. Um, and when I, you know, got involved with green building in the, in the about two thousand four, two thousand five, um, I was on a trade mission to China, and I was interested, it was sponsored by the U.S. Green Building Council. And we were interested in how are the Chinese approaching green building? because you know most of the buildings in North America and Western Europe have already been built. You know we're basically not growing very much, and so we're just replacing buildings that we tear down for the most part. Um, and one of the things that I found out was that in China, because of the sort of communist party, one party rule um, it was very common for people with engineering educations to become po- politicians to become political leaders in the u.s you almost cannot find you might have a few doctors in the u.s senate um, there was an astronaut once from new mexico and uh, harrison schmidt who in the 70s and early 80s, who, who was a US Senator. But for the most part, the career path for politicians in the US has been law and business. In China, engineering and technical skills were valued um, because if you're running a one-party state, you are responsible for results. You know, here we can just go like this, right? It's the other guy. The other guy caused a problem, now vote for me, right? But in China, as you could see in the response to coronavirus, once they got it through their heads that this was gonna be a huge problem, they moved really quickly to lock down and now they've had two days in a row of no new cases. Um, so we'll see, but they moved quickly to take measures. And in fact, right now, China is saying, we don't want anybody coming in from the West because they haven't done these things. So we're, we're all thinking, well, we're going to ban flights from China and Europe. Well, right now they're saying, given what's happening in Europe and the U.S., we're going to ban flights from there. We don't want them coming to our country. So we, we have this sort of a, we have plenty of scientists. And what we have in the political system, though, with these hundred thousand lobbyists in Washington, D.C., is, a, is a, a voice that tends to damp out their um, advice if it's politically inconvenient. And you could see in the response to the coronavirus right now that the president and vice president have finally realized that they can't wing it. They have to listen to the doctors and the people who specialize in epidemics because they modeled all this stuff. Everybody knew we didn't have enough stuff, enough masks, enough respirators, enough ventilators. Everybody knew because you could just do the numbers. They're just not there. Well, we don't have a demand for them, so we're not going to produce them, right? So rather than stockpiling medical supplies, we stockpile oil. If you want to look at priorities, right? We have a national petroleum reserve, we don't have a national medical supplies reserve. And so One of the things that will come out of this, I think, is, okay, we better go back to basics here. We've got measles spreading in the US. We've got smallpox, which was eradicated, might come back, right? We've got all these tropical diseases moving in, moving north, certainly in the US and environs. Um, We've got, a lot of problems and we know know they're there and we know they're gonna be worse. So what can we do? Well, I once calculated when I was in running solar power for Jerry Brown in California, that we could just take one of the bombing ranges that the US Navy Air Force uses, uh, naval aviation in the Southeast California desert for target practice, because you gotta have target practice, One of those bombing ranges, we could just take them, they've already been destroyed as ecosystems over many decades, Um, we could just take them and put enough solar panels there to power the entire United States. We got that much desert, and I won't say desert's not an ecosystem and not a natural environment, but we've got enough destroyed desert that we could easily power the whole US just out of a, a little sort of tip of your finger of California, that's easy. The US Army Corps of Engineers can be called in. They're being called in now to build field hospitals, but they have got some, They need something to do afterwards. Um, they could clear the ground, take care of the unexploded ordnance, big problem, right, for a bombing range. And we could build those solar panels. We could set up factories on site to build them, like Tesla's done. As a matter of fact, we just hire Tesla, go do it. Um, so what I think is, people are gonna start asking for big solutions. Even uh, President Trump talked about in planting a trillion trees, okay? So, okay, maybe he didn't really mean it, it was just a nice phrase, but we could easily plant a trillion trees with drones you just you drop a little seed packet with fertilizer and a little bit of water from a drone and just keep dropping them and enough of them will grow that you'll regenerate those places we can do it
0: hey jerry so, in in your view i'm sorry to cut you off but in your view with with these solutions that that you see let's say the solar panel or you know you've looked at alternative energies we were talking about that a bit before the show the renewable ones the resistance that i see that's obvious and big would be the current existing uh, companies or corporations that have that supply that's the biggest supply and money that you could have would be supplying the u s energy do you Do you see um, resistance coming i would see I would think that they would do everything in their power not to do that because if you're making ungodly amounts of money and you have all these people in power. You're going to do whatever it takes to ensure that that doesn't happen, and that's that's what I feel like it's been a lot of political influence, uh, planetary influence. When you were talking earlier a little bit before about the politicians, well, their goal is to get elected, right? Well, in business, the bottom line is to make money for your shareholders, and so you're always looking for these ways to make more money. So you're not factoring in the environment, and you're not factoring in human life, and that's how we have sweatshops still. That's how we have all this planetary injustice and so do you do you see that as something that is existing now and maybe this epidemic will allow us to kind of circumvent that issue
1: you know i i do think there's going to be discontinuities whether it's through elections or just natural change the question is how do you accelerate the time scale um if you look at uh coal fired electricity it's basically disappearing. Nobody wants to finance any new plants in the U.S. It's disappearing. It's because it's more expensive than wind power. So if I'm an electric utility, I, you know, bringing in all that coal is just a nuisance. I make my money by distributing the power that I make and selling it to you at the at the at the home and business, right? That's where I get paid. So if I could have a lower cost for making that power that you've already agreed to pay me 10 cents a kilowatt hour for, or 20 cents, I'm in hog heaven. I like that. So the resistance is not so much there um, as it is with the gas, natural gas utilities. Because if we start saying serious about decarbonizing, that means we're not gonna sell gas. So they are really worried. And I heard a presentation last September that the gas companies are all saying, well, wait a minute, what's gas? It's methane, one carbon and four hydrogens. That's the chemistry, right? Something you learn in high school, if you remember. Or maybe you didn't learn, maybe you were thinking about uh, judo or something
0: i appreciate the reminder
1: (laughs) (laughs) so there's four hydrogens there well why don't i run a fuel cell and make you know electricity from hydrogen and so now i got all this free solar power i can split that molecule take the carbon and do something useful with it don't have to burn it i got hydrogen so now the gas utilities are saying well we're going to promote the hydrogen economy instead of powering your car necessarily with electricity or or gasoline you could use hydrogen because and when you combust hydrogen what do you get hydrogen and oxygen what is that water so when you burn hydrogen you get water you don't get problems in the atmosphere so the gas utilities are now all sponsoring these fuel cell demonstrations to show how they can make electricity and they can make hydrogen fuel from natural gas. So again, you say, well, there's still problems because you get methane leaks at where you make the gas and they go in the atmosphere and you know nothing's perfect. But those people, because they're also existentially scared, because remember these companies have been around literally a hundred years. And all of a sudden their whole way of life is being upended and the problem of course is, and for the rest of the businesses, it's not about making money, it's about getting and keeping people that you want. And people that you want, the sort of younger, creative people, they care about sustainability. They care about the planet. They don't wanna work. The good ones don't wanna work because they have a choice. The good ones always have a choice. They don't wanna work for a company that doesn't share their values. And so that's what you see in the corporate world today is yes, shareholder profit has to be there, but I make my money with people and those people aren't gonna work for me unless I share their values. You're saying all these rebellions at Google now about not having enough women in technology, et cetera. So don't forget the workforce has two feet and they can walk. And so if I'm a business leader, I'm worried a lot about getting and keeping people, particularly in this time of diminishing size of the labor force. Because remember all the okay boomers are retiring. 10,000 a day going out of the workforce. That's a lot of babies you gotta make and wait 20 years. (laughs) So what I saw in the green building area and why it was effective with a lot of large companies was precisely because of their people and their need to get and keep good people and to be an employer of choice for those who have a choice. And that's a lot of people. So it isn't all one way. You don't, you don't get to like play by your own rules in a complex society. You have to have a balance.
0: Yeah, yeah. Again, those are really great points. And so what I'm curious about is if you would have a message um, to either the politicians of the world, uh, the young people of the world, um, or just the people of the world in general, what would that message be? Would it be the same message? Would it be a different message like in your view, with all, everything that you 've done and seen and and what you 're experiencing now and what you 've been advocating for for years, you know what would be your message to people to move forward in a way that is sustainable? you know what I mean uh, personal and planetary because the one I wanted to add in there was, well, you're right about the fear, right? And I think a lot of people right now are afraid. And, and in the world that we live in, if we don't have money, we can't go get food. And so we will die because we obviously need food to survive. And so we live our lives and we try to accumulate money and sometimes more money than we need. And sometimes we're doing it for vanity and these Um, Egotistical things because our culture says if you have the nice house and the nice car you get the nice girl and then then you can reproduce and so you need to keep getting more and more money because you feel a little bit afraid and so in, In everything that you've done. I'm just curious What would you recommend from what you've seen to really make a drastic change? and What kind of message would you deliver to the politicians or the people of the world?
1: Well, I think the first Thing you have to do is be willing to listen and have a little humility about what you don't know. Because if anyone is realistic, what you don't know encompasses 99% of reality, right? (laughs) So being willing to listen, and I think that, and to educate yourself. And I think we live in a culture where many, many people are educating themselves the internet has been a fabulous resource when I was writing my book. I I said, well, what was the weather like in Pasadena, California on Earth Day in 1970? Because I was there, but I sure don't remember, right? And I can actually go now and find out. And I put that in my book. It was actually sunny and not smoggy, surprise, but it was April and not August. Um, but the internet's a fabulous resource if you're willing to use it for something other than entertainment or what have you so i think the real message is y- you know don't take forever but educate yourself enough so that you can have a conversation with somebody else to share what you've learned so i think that whole idea of whether you're a meditator you you go within and then you come out and share Maybe you don't share anything but your state. And people, as I said earlier, people go to a master. In fact, there was a famous master in the Hasidic tradition, Jewish tradition, in, in 17th century Poland, named the Baal Shem Tov. He's very famous. And what they said of him was, I didn't go to hear, see him speak, I went to see how he tied his shoes, because every lesson he had was in that and how he acted. And so I think we say, okay, I may not be there yet. I may still tie my shoes the same way my mother showed me how to do it, (laughs) but I can do it with a different awareness, right? It's the same way, you educate yourself, you go talk to people. You listen to them and you learn something and you go talk to some more. You know, maybe 7% of the people are cut out to be activists because, you know, people are busy, people are sick, people are tired, people whatever, but you can support them. So if it's students demonstrating, you know, about the climate emergency, you can support them in all kinds of ways, financially, You can support them with letters to the editor. You can support them by showing up and just being a presence. Because they don't want to be educated by you at the beginning. Only if you're a real friend will somebody listen, right? I mean, the elders have been speaking forever. But most of us have not learned how to hear or listen. because of our social prejudices, right? You know, there's a wonderful book, a historical book called 1491. And it was about how North America was before the first landing of Europeans, right? And that same author then wrote a book called 1492, which is all of the tragedies and disasters that happened afterwards. but there was always a core remaining of wisdom, of knowledge about the land, etc. So we have to be willing to, and humble enough, if you're gonna study anything spiritual, the first thing is you have to become a little humble. You have to say, I really don't know how to do this. Can you teach me? And then you have to offer service the old, the old days, it was 12 years of service, right? Before you would get a teaching. Um, we don't have that today. We have 12 minutes. <laughs> if that. <laughs> if that, right? Enlightenment uh, okay. now. <laughs> yeah. So in compassion, the teachers still will teach us. But we do discover on our own that changing a mindset, while it's a very powerful way to make change, is very wrenching personally and socially etc you change all your friends when you start to get serious about your your inner life right and that's most people's experience maybe there's one or two friends that go with you on the journey but most of them drop away so this is like not easy stuff and i think the idea of being a Compassionate, supportive elder for people like me is out there, but you're young and you need to be more active. Right. So, what you're doing is great because you're encouraging dialogue across miles and generations um, with your show. So, that will go for a while and then you'll do something else positive, right? because nobody's on a show forever. Um, I know you want to be, but things change. Um, so, So to me, it's like educate yourself, give something, listen, learn something more, and support people who are doing what you no longer can do yourself.
0: Amazing. Very beautifully put. And, you know, what it reminded me of, I just did an elders panel with a Zuni elder, a Mi'kmaq elder, and they've been two of my very influential teachers. And Clifford Mahudi said the exact same thing. And he just talked about, you know, when he was younger, uh, part of the tradition was learning from the elders. And I'm seeing it here now. Like, you're older than me. You know, we don't have the, the dialogue in um, Western culture to call you an elder, but it's a person that's a grandparent that's lived a lot of life. You know, how many years alone have you been in environmental engineering? that's how you gain knowledge and wisdom and understanding because you have all of this life experience and you you grow and you apply your theory with practice theory and practice and when you're young and full of piss and vinegar i think as the australians say it you know you're 20 and you're going out to get the world but you don't know anything you're just testing your your theories with vigor you know what i mean and then you fall down and you get back up and you try again and but and the indigenous cultures, we don't really have it as much here, is you would talk to your grandparents because they lived 100 years and they can really help and really pass down amazing um, experiences and wisdom through a lot of life and a lot of um, understanding. And so I think that that's what you're doing here. And I really appreciate that. And one of the things Clifford said as well is listening. You know, we're in a culture where we, we don't listen and we don't actively listen. We're waiting to speak. And you shared another thing about learning and giving back and having a dialogue and that humility and that 's the idea again that is like everybody has something to offer you know you don 't know everything, but when you have something of value, you can share it and offer it to help somebody else and These are very, very simple principles, um, but they 're not really they 're not really put in action in our culture right now, and so I really love everything that you shared and, and how you phrased it and this whole thing has been amazing i 'm curious. Um, is there anything that you wish that I had asked or anything that you feel is important to, to talk about before we end? Because this has been great. I want to honor your time and, and also make sure you tell people where they can find your book. But is there anything that you wish that I'd asked you or you want to talk about?
1: You know, we've had a great conversation. And one of the phrases that I learned when I first started studying meditation and, and hanging out with other meditators is that, people have all kinds of different experiences, but what you can have with each other is a conversation of discovery. Like, I heard this and I thought about it this way, and somebody will say, well, yeah, that's okay, but I thought about it this way. And somebody else might, well, I thought about it this way. And oftentimes after my teacher would give a lecture, he had a little, there was a little coffee shop or tea shop next next door and we would all go in and we would share what we thought we heard and if you ever want to learn humility go to a lecture by a a real uh, spiritual master and then go share with others what you heard and what you'll find is everyone hears something different so you can learn literally from everybody and one of the trainings that I've adopted over many years, is listening to what goes on around me. I might hear something in the grocery store, two people talking, that's perfect for me at that time to get a a lesson out of. I might see somebody treating somebody some way, that's a lesson what not to do. But I might just hear something that's very useful for me. And so I think the essence of being a eco-spiritual warrior is trying to turn everything to your own advantage so that you can assimilate it, implement it, and offer it. And I think that is why I keep studying this field because, hey, a lot of stuff I learned no longer valid. (laughs) That's one problem with, with being around for a long time is some things that you thought were a good idea no longer a very good idea well okay i accept that and what are the new ideas i can learn so i think this learning teaching model we're all engaged in and let's make it real and let's make it heartfelt and let's make it forward-looking and if we do that we will make our contribution because there's no magic bullet here that's going to suddenly solve everything. It's a lot. I mean, we've got seven billion people, almost eight. That's a lot of individual actions. I saw a wonderful video of a man who cleaned up a horrendously littered beach in India, Bombay, I think it was. He just started. He started with a couple of uh, plastic bags in a deal and a dumpster. And all of a sudden there were thousands of people within a short period of time. And then the sea turtles came back. That was their beach, but they weren't gonna go there with all that junk on. I mean, we're talking more littered than you can imagine, but he just started. So I think you just start, start from where you're at. You can't do anything else anyway. And go from there with a generous heart and you'll be doing your part however that manifests and that's that's good enough why not uh,
0: amazing i love it i love everything about it what a fantastic beautiful tremendous message all of it really is 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 been great to listen to. Um, and it's coming again, someone I look at your work and, and your lifetime of work, you know, just a tremendous amount of respect for you and what you've done and committing to that work and just trying to share, you know, and and I love it because you're saying, you know, I, I think as some of the younger people are like, Oh, you know, I know everything. I was like, well, if you've been in this game for this long, and you're saying, I think it's the Aristotle or Socrates, what I know is I know nothing. And or, the more I know, the more I realize I know nothing, something along those lines, and. And um, you know we know what we what we know and understand, but when we share it in that spirit of of understanding, everybody has a perspective, everybody has a piece of knowledge. I think that's a really empowering way to um, view community and view our planet. To respect everybody's point of view and and what they have to share, and we're all gonna learn more, and we're all gonna be able to work together rather than enforcing you know the opposite of what that is. And so, I, I,
1: I have one more thing.
0: Yeah, go for it. The-
1: the book you asked about.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah, we're going to get to that. <laughs>
1: here. I should yeah. be holding it up, but I'm just not a really good salesman. <laughs> it's, called, it's called The Godfather of Green, an eco-spiritual memoir, and it will be available April 22nd in ebook and paperback. And if you just Google uh, The Godfather of Green on your favorite book-buying site, you can pre-order it today.
0: That was very good. It sounds like somebody's been been training. What about a website? Where can they find more? Do you have more lectures? Where can they find more content?
1: So if you go to jerryudelson.net, I have a website for the book and videos and some other things.
0: Perfect. Good. good. Well, you know, everybody listening, please check out Jerry's work, share this podcast, get the book. Um, You know, this goes really beyond uh, eco environmentalism and eco culture because it's a very holistic view and we need to take into consideration the planet and each other. And so this has been tremendous. I appreciate you. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to leave the listeners with?
1: Thank you, Matt, for doing this, for having this platform. I really, really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure and my honor. Uh, We'll stay connected. Let me know if I can support you anyway. And just thanks guys for listening. Make sure to support Jerry. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Hey guys, I hope that you enjoyed that episode of the show. If you do want to support getting the word out there, please share this. Leave a review in iTunes. Go to mattbelair.com. Sign up for the email list. You can also become a patron if you go to patreon.com forward slash mattbelair or join the Master Mind, Body, and Spirit Academy and when you do, you'll get access to the amazing Soul Compass course. I would love to have you there getting your feedback, your questions, and just making the academy the exclusive content, the course, even better with your feedback. And during this time, we're doing a pay as you want. So just hit me up, Matt Belair, or Matt at zenathlete.com, or DM me on Instagram or anywhere, and let me know what you can afford, um, and happy to get that course and have you in the academy. And it also supports the show, so I can keep doing these and uh, bring you the best guests and information possible. So thank you so much for listening to this. I hope that you are well, safe and happy. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.